I'd like you to turn to God's Word, please, to open the Bible at John chapter 9, Gospel of John, and the ninth chapter. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. John chapter 9, from verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed. Then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Amen. Richard Buse was a little boy in Africa when Cunningham's comet appeared in the night sky. He tells the story. He says, I was hauled out of bed and wrapped in a blanket and brought outside to see the spectacle. I can see it, exclaimed my younger brother Michael. I peered up anxiously, nervous of failure. Where? Where is the comet? Look there, and a parental finger pointed out the direction. Michael chirped again. I I can see it. I stared my hardest, said Richard. I can see it, I said woodenly. And with that, we were carried back to bed. But, he says, I'm afraid I never did see that comet. I identify with that story because I remember uh, a day in biology class at school when they were doing tests for colour. I don't know whether you've ever had this experience. It's happened to me twice, actually, once at school and then again when I went to university. And uh, we were presented with a colour chart which consisted of blobs of coloured circles in which numbers were supposed to be discernible. And then they discovered that I was red-green colour blind, the only one in the class who had this particular disability. It was a source of tremendous mirth to my fellow students, and I can vividly recall my sense of embarrassment. Sight is indeed an emotive subject. We find it very difficult to admit that we cannot see what other people all too easily observe. And this issue of sight, of a failure to see something, on the one hand physically and then also spiritually, is something that is brought home to us with considerable force in the passage that we've just read together. Here's a story about physical blindness, about spiritual blindness, and more particularly about the one who is the light of the world. Now as we begin to consider this dramatic close encounter, and let me say that I'm very pleased to be a part of this series. I think it it has the makings, or maybe it already has been a tremendous series, and this is the downturn at the end. But uh, uh, it's close encounters, isn't it? It's not a close encounter, of course, with E.T. or any extraterrestrial creature, but close encounters with the one who is the Lord of life, and today the light of the world. And as we begin to consider this encounter between Jesus and a blind man, I want to say two things about John's Gospel by way of introduction and setting the context today. First of all, I want to say that John is very specific about his purpose in writing this material. 
According to chapter 20, and you know this verse very well, this book and the selection of stories contained in it are given so that, John says, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Well, what could be more self-explanatory? This is an evangelistic tract designed to bring readers face to face with Jesus and the good news concerning him. Good news in the first century when John was writing and good news in every century ever since. So that's the first thing and it's very simple and yet seems to me very important that we understand as we're reading this passage today, John is quite specific about the purpose of the whole gospel that he writes and about this story as well. The second thing is that John makes particular use in his writings of the themes of light and darkness. This is true here in the gospel and also in his letters which appear later in the New Testament. In doing so, he draws upon Old Testament imagery. For example, in Isaiah 29 verse 18 and Isaiah 35 verse 5, we discover that one of the features or characteristics of the coming messianic age is that the blind receive their sight. And in the immediate context of this passage, we find that in the previous chapter, chapter 8, Jesus makes a very famous statement. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then when you dip into the beginning of chapter 9, you discover that that comment is actually reiterated in verse 5. Now, it's no surprise, therefore, that John, in chapter 9, gives us a story about a blind man who receives his sight from the Lord Jesus. So what I want you to see is the fact that this gospel, and I suppose this is a rule for for all of the, the writing of Scripture, is not random writing. It's not what we sometimes describe as doodling. You know, here, here is John, and uh, he's sitting, well, wherever he is. Is he in Ephesus, or is he somewhere else writing back to Ephesus? And uh, he's at a bit of a, a loose end that day, and so he, he doodles, and he writes down some scattered thoughts. No, that's not the way it happens. This is very specific, planned, executed literature designed to confront people in every generation with the challenge of Jesus Christ. Now, to that end, it's important that we understand that the principal figure in this encounter, John chapter 9, is not actually the blind man at all. And it's not actually the Pharisees, though they play a fairly prominent role. It's certainly not the man's parents, but the principal figure, the chief actor in this uh, play, if you like, is the Lord Jesus himself. And that's exactly as it should be, because here God is revealing himself in the person of his son. So that by way of introduction, John's specific about his purpose, and he makes use of these themes of light and darkness, and draws on Old Testament imagery, particularly in Isaiah, to do so. Now in the story, it seems to me, there are three types of blindness. And I'd like you to consider them with me this morning. There is in the first place a case of involuntary blindness. In this story, we meet a man who has been blind from birth. The disciples are perplexed about him. The issue in their mind is this. Why is he blind? 
Is it because he sinned? And if you'd taken a straw poll of the disciples, every single one of them, probably without exception, would have raised their hand to that conclusion. They'd have said, yes, it's because he sinned. They assumed that suffering is the result of sin. And they asked the question, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. In other words, they had been conditioned by popular religious ideology of the time. Most Palestinian Jews in Jesus' day assumed that sin and suffering were intimately connected. The the rabbis emphasized this, and people believed it. And this simplistic view that suffering and sin are intimately connected still does the rounds in the modern world. For example, if you take the Hindu doctrine of karma, there is an idea there that the soul has to go on working through a series of cycles. Uh, They are related to the consequences of the actions of the person. And so if you do good things, then the likelihood is in the process of reincarnation that you will be reincarnated in a higher form. And if you do evil things, then conversely, you will be reincarnated in a lower form. So if you ask the Hindus, is this man blind because he sinned? The answer is clearly and definitely yes. Now you say, well, I, I don't know very much about Hindu theology or Hindu thinking, but I do know that there is a theology of healing out there. And the theology of healing out there is that in order for a sick person to be made well, they must repent of sin or of unbelief or of lack of faith or something like that. Uh, and let me say that that is very, uh, a very dominant kind of thinking uh, in the evangelical context today. That if there's something wrong with you physically, mentally, emotionally, then it's because there's some kind of sin in your life. You, you need to get right with God, or so we're told. And I want to say such theologies have devastating pastoral implications. And many pastors have to pick up the pieces when that kind of theology does the rounds. So there is this linkage between sickness and sin that certainly was in the mind of the Jews and not just then but it's also a modern idea as well. Now in a general sense of course the disciples were quite correct because as a a result of the fall uh, described in Genesis 3 suffering, disease and disorder entered the world. So in a general sense they, they were right. Suffering comes about as a result of sin. And in some individual cases in the history of Israel, sin was unmistakably connected with suffering. We take, for instance, Miriam in Numbers 12, afflicted with leprosy as a case in point. But in the main, the disciples had erred in their understanding of God's purposes. And the answer that Jesus gives to their question in verse 3 is truly illuminating on this point. Jesus makes two specific points. And the first is this. Suffering is not always a direct result of sin. It is not always a direct result of sin. So Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Uh, And this tallies, of course, with the record of Scripture, where some of the greatest saints have also been some of the greatest sufferers. We take Job who lost everything, including his health. Or the Apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh, 
and his suffering on behalf of the churches, recorded in graphic detail in, for instance, 2 Corinthians 11. Some of the greatest saints have also been some of the greatest sufferers. And I'm sure there are many people in the congregation today, uh, and you can identify with that. You'd want to give extra biblical examples. You'd say, I know somebody who is a tremendous saint, and they're also a great sufferer. Uh, And you cannot be involved in pastoral life for very long before you discover that that is the case. So, Jesus says, suffering is not always a direct result of sin. And then in the second place he says, suffering can be used constructively by God. Jesus says this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So in the case of this individual, his blindness was used by God for his benefit. How remarkable that is. His blindness is used by God for his benefit. How so? Well, through his blindness... He had a close encounter, an encounter with the one who is the light of the world, a meeting with Jesus, the Son of God, who changed his life and showed to those around this poor individual a miracle of power and love. Suffering can be used constructively by God. In his book, Fear No Evil, David Watson wrote this, When you crush lavender, you find its full fragrance. When you squeeze an orange, you extract its sweet juice. In the same way, it is often through pain and hurt that God's people develop the fragrance and sweetness of Christ in their lives. It is often through pain and hurt, he says, that God's people discover the fragrance and sweetness of Christ in their lives. Suffering can be used constructively by God. And yet I want to be honest with you today and open my heart and say that I'm not entirely satisfied by that. I I, I find there's so much about suffering that I cannot absolutely fully understand. I I can say this this is the philosophy, this is the ideology, this is the theory. And yet when someone is in the midst of suffering... We've got to be very careful that we don't just simply trot out all the glib phrases. And I've discovered that the best thing quite often to do is to say virtually nothing. Times of suffering and in times of bereavement. It's far better to say little than to say too much. And so I'm convinced that Bruce Milne is absolutely right when he says, in the end, there is a dimension in suffering that defies all explanation. He's honest. There is a dimension in suffering that defies all explanation. But here anyway, in the first place, is a case of involuntary blindness. A man blind from birth, but not hopeless. A man not hopeless because the glory of God is about to be seen in his life. So there's the first thing, a case of involuntary blindness. And then secondly, there is here in this story a case of deliberate blindness. When the man healed by Jesus was observed by his neighbors, they questioned him. And then they brought him to the Pharisees who did the same. Well, theirs was more like an interrogation. 
They interrogated the individual and his parents and they criticized Jesus on the basis of their tradition. What was their problem? Well, their problem was that he had done this on the Sabbath. That was the point at issue. It didn't really matter to them, it appears, that the blind man could see or that Jesus obviously had the power to do this. What rankled with them was that one of their rules had been broken. Now, not, let me say, a rule that was biblical about the Sabbath, but one of their rules. They placed their own interpretation on the Sabbath. They were actually as blind to the liberating, transforming truth of God as this poor man had been physically blind from birth. This was a case of deliberate blindness. Now, one of the oldest little commentaries that I have on on my bookshelves is a little thing by Gordon Bridger, uh, The Man from Outside. A wonderful little thing that I picked up on the year dot uh, as a student at Jordanstown, and uh, I've always kept it. It's now falling apart. It's one of those little paperbacks, and uh, it's, it's falling apart. But I still keep it. And I discovered two lovely little heads, or some heads, uh, for this point. And the first is this. These Pharisees were guilty of putting prejudice before facts. The evidence was there for all to see that Jesus had healed this man. His neighbors recognized him. They said, yes, it's him. Though some of them said it only looks like him. His parents confirmed that his condition had been from birth. And significantly, he himself stuck to his story in the face of all kinds of intimidation. He knew that the Pharisees had the power to eject them from the synagogue with all of the social, religious, quasi-political implications of that in his day. And yet, in spite of this, the Pharisees were prejudiced against facts. His parents confirm it. His neighbors say, yes, it's him. He himself sticks to his story. They refuse to accept the facts. They're more concerned with the tradition of the elders. They're more concerned with the detailed observance of the Sabbath than with the clear and unmistakable revelation of God. And so they said, verse 6, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath, even though he was Lord of the Sabbath. Now the specific point for our interest this morning is this. Jesus had worked on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees, because if you were going to practice medicine on the Sabbath, you could only do it if somebody's life was in danger. Not in any other instance. So only in the case of a life under threat could you practice your medicine on the Sabbath. And this man, manifestly, was not in mortal danger. Therefore, Jesus was guilty of working on the Sabbath. They put prejudice before facts. Secondly, they put argument before action. Constantly arguing, never coming to a decision. The Pharisees, always asking questions, it appears, never really seeking the answer. In verse 27, the man says, and what a delightful comment this is. He hits the sore point with them. He says, I've told you already. Why are you asking me again? Do you want to become his disciples also? And they're furious. And they throw him out. But my friends, here's a man who speaks from experience. He sees the facts and he experiences the power of Christ in his life. And he speaks on the basis of that. But the Pharisees are different. They speak on the basis of their theories and regulations. It appears that they do not have a vital, life-giving relationship 
to God. Now I want to suggest that it is not difficult to see the parallels that exist between the condition of the blind beggar and the spiritual blindness of a world without Christ. I'm always a little bit nervous about drawing too quickly a spiritual application from some of these New Testament stories, but the application is very clear in this one. That there is a parallel. Here's a man blind from birth. He mirrors exactly the human condition as each one of us born into a fallen world lacks spiritual understanding. Spiritually blind. That's the condition of every person who doesn't have a living relationship with Jesus. That's why we we should be so burdened about our friends and neighbours, about the community around this building of people blind spiritually who need to see. There's a parallel. What about a man receiving his sight from Jesus, the light of the world? Here's a picture, surely, of all uh, and so many in the congregation this morning who identify with this, who have the light of the gospel shed abroad in their hearts and are brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ in his light. There's a very obvious parallel. And then what about a man encountering opposition because of his confession and following of Jesus. It's not there in the text by accident that the man received such opposition because here is John writing a a, a piece of literature that is directly applicable to Christians struggling, suffering, facing opposition in the first century. And so they were to be encouraged by this. They were to see that all who follow Jesus will encounter persecution, opposition. It has remained so for Christians down through the centuries, has it not? Now, there are many people in the world, of course, and I wonder, would there be some in the congregation this morning who are deliberately blind? Putting prejudice before facts. Last Sunday morning, you were thinking about Nicodemus, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But there are many people who deny it. Anybody here this morning denies that? Because you imagine that you're good enough anyway. And that this talk of regeneration, of a a life-giving spiritual principle that needs to come into you through the, the miracle of the new birth, that's something that's for others, but not for you. Because you imagine that at the very end, you will approach God with all that is good in your life, and he will accept you. And the Bible says not so. Jesus says you must be born again. Jesus says no one will be justified by works of the law, but... Maybe you deny it on the basis of your church connection or sacraments or as we Baptists call them, ordinances. Is that possible? Jesus says a day of judgment is coming when we must all stand before God, but you deny it. At least your carelessness of life suggests that you do. You have a religious philosophy that is homemade, that consists of your own ideas and theories, but has no real connection to the word of God. Putting prejudice before facts. And then maybe there are some who put argument before action. 
always questioning, always debating, never arriving at a conviction about anything. I've met a lot of these people in my time, a lot of these people, who love a good dispute, who are really into a good theological argument. Sometimes when I, I'm going places to preach, I, I'm listening to all these good theological arguments on Sunday sequence. Sometimes I get so frustrated I just have to turn it off. It'll destroy my sanctification before I arrive at the place where I'm supposed to be preaching. But there are many people like that, aren't they? They like the debate. They like the question and answer, the thrust of that. But they've never actually done what the man in the story did. He said, Lord, I believe. And worshipped him. Maybe you prefer to discuss than to kneel at Jesus' feet. And seek his forgiveness. Now I don't for a moment want to advocate an irrational, unthinking kind of faith. Not for a moment. But I do fear that there are some who are so busy debating and questioning like these religious leaders that they have missed the most important thing. Believing in Jesus and his word. Now that's an application for any who perhaps do not as yet know Jesus Christ in a personal way as Savior and Lord. But there's also an application for us as Christians. This application comes from Bruce Mill, who says, The tragedy of the Pharisees causes us to ask deep and disturbing questions. How is it that those who revered the Scriptures and were zealous about pious behavior become in the hands of Satan an instrument for the destruction of Christ. Wow. How is it? Well, do we imagine for a moment that the Pharisees are are extinct? They are alive and well. And is there something of their spirit in me? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Is there something of their spirit in me? In you. Because whenever I find myself elevating the letter of the law over its spirit, whenever I do not rejoice in the saving of a life because the instrument used was not one of my group, whenever I I lose a sense of real joy in the grace of God, then I am as deliberately blind as the Pharisees. And and this week I had to sit with this text and say, Lord, I'm deliberately blind. Because that's me. I think that everything should be done my way. Boy, wouldn't church be an awful place if everything was done my way. I, I, I had to learn that, kicking, struggling, wrestling with that over many years, that there's such diversity and variety in the church and it's an enriching thing. I'm not talking about giving up important theological distinctives. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the fact that there are all kinds of people in the church and we've got to get on together and we enrich one another. But am I deliberately blind? Resisting the grace of God, the joy of real salvation. Well, if that's so, and I've had to do that this week, I need to cast myself afresh on the grace that first drew me to the Lord. And maybe there's a point for all of us today as we come towards the end of the service this morning before coffee 
that we honestly face up to this and say, Lord, I need to cast myself afresh in your grace. Because I thought before I came into the meeting this morning that I was very far down the spectrum from the Pharisees, but actually, there's a bit of their spirit in me. So perhaps we could ask for forgiveness. A case of involuntary blindness. A case of deliberate blindness. And then thirdly, a case of inflicted blindness. In verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Richard Buse says about this verse, The blind non-entity emerged from the story seeing and believing. The religious leadership emerged from the story with the scales ever more firmly over their eyes. Boy, what a contrast. The blind non-entity sees and believes the religious leadership. Those you would, you would expect something else of have the scales ever more firmly lodged on their eyes. Now, that's a law of the spiritual life. That those who harden their hearts against God find in the end that God actually does the job for them. That God hardens their hearts still further. It's a case of inflicted blindness. Now, there is biblical precedent for this. You will know that in the Old Testament, for instance, Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses. But ultimately, the man of God had it revealed to him that it was God who was doing this in the heart of Pharaoh. Exodus 14, verse 4, which says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, the children of Israel. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So there's Old Testament precedent. The same is true in the New Testament. We think of Romans chapter 1. Where Paul says, therefore God gave them over. Notice that little phrase. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And in the succeeding verses in Romans chapter 1, he repeats that phrase on at least two occasions. God gave them over. God inflicting people with hardness, with blindness. Well, you say, how do you get your head around that? I, I'm not sure I can. I don't profess to understand the strange rule of the spiritual economy. But I do know from bitter experience that time and again I have met people who have for a lifetime set themselves against God and his word and the barbs of conscience and today as they draw near to the end of life they're hardened to the things of God. What a tragedy. Sometimes Pastors are called by family and friends to the bedside of someone who for a lifetime has hardened themselves against the word of God. It is the most difficult thing in the world to deal with. Because here is a little family who are obviously deeply concerned about this individual. But you discover more often than not, that the individual themselves has no time or interest or real concern, hardened to the things of God. Spurgeon tells of being called to such a bedside. He says, I, I went to this bedside of a man for whom others sought repentance in vain. Said Spurgeon, sadly, all opportunity that had once been afforded him was gone. 
and he remained steadfast in his unbelief. This simply means, my friends, that God has a way of underlining our choices. God has a way of underlining our actions. We must not close our eyes and ears to the overtures of God, to his voice in our hearts. If we choose a godless, wicked path, God will give us our fill of it and judge us for it. But this is a day of good news. This is a day of grace. This is a day of salvation. This is a day of opportunity. So that today, in this building this morning, you too can have a close encounter. An encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the light of the world. The one who gives real spiritual vision. When you come and say, Lord, I believe, and mean it with all your heart, he will give you that sight. And my prayer this morning is that like the man in the story, there may be people in this congregation today who for the very first time will say, one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story that forms part of the tapestry of John's Gospel. Thank you that it's there for a purpose, so that we might see Jesus, that we might understand who he is, and that we might commit ourselves in in earnest trust to him. Lord, open our eyes to see him. For those who perhaps have never committed themselves to him and sought his forgiveness, we pray that today they may do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for ourselves, those who have been Christians for a long time, that you will deliver us from the intransigence, the hardness of hearts of the Pharisees. Lord, how we need your touch, that fresh touch of the Spirit of God. Grant that today this word may live in our hearts, not only for these moments, but throughout the rest of the hours of this day. For Jesus' sake. Amen.